Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. We're going to learn about BYU Public Radio today, something I don't know a lot about, except BYU Public Radio is doing really good stuff. We have um, one of the podcast hosts and one of the people that's been involved in BYU Radio for quite a while, um, Julie Rose on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, Julie has a, you know, when I think of a radio station listeners, I just think of live programming, but um, in the world of radio, they create podcasts now, as you may better understand than me. So they will release content. It can be an ongoing podcast. There's, I think, five or six podcasts connected with BYU Radio that are hosted on the BYU Radio app. And we're going to talk about one um, called Top of Mind. That's been a show at BYU since 2015, but now is a podcast since February of 2022. Terrific podcast talking about important subjects in our faith community. And I think they have the right person in Julie Rose running that show. Um, Julie grew up in Provo. Um, she um, has been drawn to this space ever since her academic training in PR. Um, she's been involved in public radio really her whole career, including a stint in Charlotte, North Carolina, for many years connected to NPR. She's probably done 10,000 at least live interviews um, and has just been in this space a long time. It may be a little different for Julie actually to be a guest on a show since she's done 99% of the work she's probably done. She's talking to people, but we're so glad to have you on the podcast, Julie. Thank you so much. You're right. I'm way more comfortable asking <laughs> the questions than answering them, but this is great. I appreciate you. And it's such a great service that you're doing for our community. So I'm honored to be part of it. And I think what we'll do is introduce Top of Mind because it has a real goal. It's not um, in our community. That's a serious goal. It's not and it's the kind of goals that I'm interested in because I'm looking to ways to create Zion by talking about tender subjects and helping yeah. us do better as a faith. And Julie Rose is doing that with this episode. Julie also has a wonderful, unique personal story. And I, I'm going to prod her along towards the end of the podcast to share some of that with you because I think that'll be helpful for you. But Julie, just we'll turn it over to you. And if you want to introduce more about you before you get into the top of mind, that would be wonderful for our listeners, too. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, I think, as you mentioned, Richard, I am, I've been in radio reporting, radio journalism for 20 years and um, reporting for uh, public radio stations. And like you said, reporting, contributing to the NPR network shows like Morning Edition and All Things Considered and just loved, loved, loved that work. Um, and then for the last nine years, doing Top of Mind here at BYU Radio, which began, as you mentioned, as a daily live radio show. Every single day for two hours on the radio, <laughs> I was doing mostly live, every single live no-net interviews with people about every topic you can imagine, like big, important issues and, you know, fascinating new science research and education research and cultural research and, you know, all the things, right, which is I mean, I like to say that my superpower is curiosity. I am endlessly curious about everything. <laughs> I can get my curiosity antenna going about everything. And so, and I love giving people that same experience of coming into a topic. And I would hear this all the time from people. 
I never would have thought that I'd be interested in 3D printing in academia, right? And I'm like, well, neither did I. But then it turns out X, Y, Z, you know, and somebody would be like, and then that interview you did, and I was fascinated and I had no idea. And uh, I think curiosity is always, curiosity, actually, I really believe is, is one of the most important keys to overcoming a lot of what ails us in our society right now in terms of the polarization and the division and the apathy and the fear of engaging on important issues. And I'll expand on that in a second. But anyway, that it's my natural sort of inclination. In fact, my family members, you know, close friends, even I'll admit that uh, I've been on many a date where I realize that my date is feeling like they are being interrogated because I cannot turn off the curiosity. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I have to be like, all right, I got to stop asking questions because this is getting a little one-sided. So anyway, um, I'm, it means that I'm pers- per- I've really, this is, I could not think of something I'd rather be doing than interviewing people, especially about really important topics. So, you know, fast forward seven years, every single day, thousands and thousands, I mean, probably close to 10,000 interviews I did over the course of those <laughs> seven years, wow. day in and day out prepping and then really diving in and trying to find the curiosity in every single interview and guest that we had on the air. And um, I started to realize a couple of years ago that I had a kind of a big problem because I didn't, I, I didn't want to engage with the news. Like I, I for so long had been the kind of person who constantly always had the news on. I was never listening to music. I was always reading the news, listening to it. It was the backdrop to my life. It was obviously important to my job. And yet I didn't, I was having a harder and harder time mustering the will to to engage with the news because of how it made me feel. I was feeling, you know, it made me feel anxious, (laughs) made me feel um, depressed made me feel like there's just no hope. We're just so divided and the problems are too big. And there's all this stuff that nobody's, you know, and it felt like so much of the time that that even the conversations that we were having, that I was having on the radio, it was like, we're probing into this big problem. And then you get to the solutions piece of it. Like, what do we do about this? And a lot of times it's like, I don't know, I guess we got to fix it. Right. (laughs) But how, and how are we going to find, it just felt, it felt to me like so much of the time, the news was just focused on how things were terrible. And I just, I didn't have the will. And what am I going to do as a radio journalist who doesn't want to pay attention to the news? And as inspiration works and divine guidance works right around that same time, um, we here at BYU Broadcasting got a new, uh, a new leader. And his instruction to us was, let's pause, stop doing the daily thing. Let's make these shows weekly, one hour a week, and let's really figure out how to do something that matters. And the problem that I wanted to solve was the problem I was having, which is I care about the world. I, I, I care about important issues. And it doesn't feel right to just not know what's going on. And yet I, don't want to engage with my options out there to understand what's going on. So that's how Top of Mind, the podcast came about. A year and a half ago, we said, all right. And in fact, it turns out that um, this, this news avoidance thing that I was describing is a common, I was like, surely I'm not the only one, but I was really embarrassed to admit it because what kind of journalist doesn't want to engage with the news, right? I'm like, I don't think I should admit this. 
And then I found out that 40% of Americans, this is according to a, a recent Reuters study in the last couple of years, 40% of Americans are actively avoiding the news at times wow. in their life because it's depressing or it's overwhelming or it feels biased or it makes them feel anxious. Um, and so I realized I wasn't alone. So could we create a podcast that would take one tough topic each week, one issue that people feel strongly about, that, that we're inclined maybe to avoid discussing with people because we're worried about how it's going to go? Um, or we're inclined to not want to really have to do much more reading and listening on because we feel like we know what there is to know. We know where we stand on it. We're not going to change our mind. So what's the point, right? Could we, could we make a podcast that takes one issue like that a week and goes looking for perspectives that are going to surprise us, that are going to show us that there's nuance in this issue, that, that it's more complicated than we want to assume. And, and then to say, okay, to find in the nuance more clarity about our own views. Because for the first time, you're thinking about something from a slightly different perspective. Um, to find those moments of curiosity that make you think, oh, hang on, I, okay, I want to know more about that. I don't agree, but I'm curious about that. Uh, how could you think that, right? Um, and ultimately to feel more empathy for perspectives we haven't considered before. And we always try to leave, and then we decided, and this is a really important part of it, we always want to make sure that we're leaving the issue. We're not solving any of these issues, and we're not trying to change your mind. So on none of these issues, whether it's affirmative action or, you know, gun violence or uh, teaching race in schools or healthcare reform, I mean, whatever it is, we're going to touch on it, all right? The big issues, how to talk about abortion. And we're going to say, we don't have a position. We're, we're not trying to convince you of something, but we're also going to respect you. No matter what your view is on the issue, you're going to feel respected in the course of listening to this podcast. Um, but you're also going to feel challenged. Something is going to come along in this episode that's going to challenge you because that's where the curiosity happens. That's where we break open into more clarity. Um, it's not comfortable. So we do a lot of work to try to make sure that we are creating a space where as you're listening and you come up to that moment where you hear the thing and you're like, I do not agree with that, that you hang with us, you stick with that discomfort long enough to get to a place where, where you have more clarity for yourself and more empathy. And we do that by making sure that we're not, no hot takes, not interested in sound bites. We're not having debates. We're not bringing people on to yell at each other. And we're not, and it's not a focus on trying to convince you that this side or that side is right or wrong, but to, to try to find the nuance, to complicate the narrative is a word that's used in conflict and studies of conflict theory. Um, and, you know, we get to the, and, and then we leave you, we try to leave you feeling empowered. I mean, our tagline is becoming better citizens, kinder neighbors, and more effective advocates for the things that matter to you. I just want you to have more clarity, maybe a little more empathy, so you can go out into the world not afraid to talk about this issue in, in an educated, nuanced way and work for the things that matter to you. So that's what we do every week, top of mind. <laughs> it's really fun. It's a lot of work.
I'm just really moved. I, you can't see this, listeners, on the screen, but I just keep giving Julie thumbs ups for the work she's doing and the focus and the effort and the need for this. Um, I've got some comments, but I think I'll just save them. Just keep sharing more what you'd like to share. Yeah. So, um, you know, so the other piece of, of sort of stepping back from the daily radio, trying to address this very personal, almost selfish problem that I was experiencing. Like I need a podcast that engages on these issues. That's not going to leave me feeling depressed and divisive. Um, but the other piece was, okay, well, we're BYU radio. You know, we are funded by the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So what does that mean in the context of this work? Um, and I almost jumped out of my seat and shouted. I mean, it took everything I had to, to not do this when um, a few months ago, over the pulpit in sacrament meeting, the, the letter from the first presidency, a letter, a letter that we've come to expect. If you're a regular attender of the church, you know, in these sacrament meetings, a letter is read from the first presidency. And in Utah, at least, it's very common that it'll come typically around primary season. And it says, we encourage you to get involved in, you know, local elections and pretend, attend your precinct meetings, because that's an important part of being a, you know, a good citizen and a good saint. Um, and the church is not going to take political stances on political issues. And then it goes on to say usually, but sometimes when it's an issue that affects our doctrine or our, you know, core beliefs, we might, you know, voice an opinion, but we're not going to campaign and we're not going to use church resources to campaign, right? Like that's, I remember when that felt felt kind of new and novel when that started happening years ago. But now it's like the thing I'll usually just tune it out. I'm like, oh, OK, well, here's the letter again. And I'm sitting there. I usually knit in sacrament meeting to kind of keep my focus. So I'm, I'm knitting and I'm like, oh, here's the letter. All right. I could basically give you this word for word. And I will be honest that that that, that letter like that was part of why I felt like, you know, even just we were being told like you, we should be engaged in our communities. That was an underlying theme of what top of mind is about. And so I've always felt that. You know, we're not specifically engaging issues from a, from an LDS lens, and we're not specifically for members of the church. We're we're heard on satellite radio, and we're we're available globally. And a lot of our listeners are not in Utah, but building a body of saints that is engaged in their communities, you know, that 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 has empathy, that communicates in a civil way. And is, you know, making, using their influence for good in their communities requires the kind of thing that Top of Mind is providing, which is an opportunity to engage deeply on important issues in a civil, thoughtful, nuanced way. So I've always felt that we were a tool <laughs> for members of the church, an important tool. And then this letter read most recently in 2020, 2020, 2023, um, it was read over the pulpit in June in my, in my congregation. Um, it, it, I just, if, if it's okay, Richard, I want to read just a portion of this signed by the First Presidency. We urge Latter-day Saints to be active citizens by registering, exercising their right to vote, and engaging in civic affairs, always demonstrating Christ-like love and civility in political discourse. We urge you to spend the time needed to become informed about the issues and candidates you will be considering. Some principles compatible with the gospel may be found in various political parties and members should seek candidates who best embody those principles. 
Members should also study candidates carefully and vote for those who have demonstrated integrity, compassion, and service to others, regardless of party affiliation. Merely voting a straight ticket. Now, this was the part that my ears really like that I, I, I was like, hang on a second. My needle stopped on my knitting in my lap and I looked up, wait a second. Merely voting a straight ticket or voting based on tradition without careful study of candidates and their positions on important issues is a threat to democracy and inconsistent with revealed standards. Information on candidates is available through the internet, debates, and other sources. Signed by the First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I, that was a moment where I thought, oh, top of mind is the tool. We, like, that's why we exist. It's not enough to do what so many of us, myself included, have, have been prone to do at times, which is to look for a shortcut to figure out how we should think or feel or vote on a specific issue, to look to whichever party, you know, has traditionally aligned with what we think is, you know, is, is the righteous way, right? It's not enough to, to vote straight ticket, to, to just sort of make those assumptions. We have to engage deeply with individual candidates, with, with important issues, it says, and not just rely on tradition. And I also, and, 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 but then you're thinking, okay, but how, you know, what? It's so exhausting <laughs> to try to, you know, how should I feel about this particular divisive issue? Well, I can go watch one TV station and it's going to tell me that this is the right way to view it. And then I can go watch this other cable channel and it's going to tell me those other people are idiots and this is the right way to view it. And, you know, and, and then I can read the newspaper and it's going to quote people telling me this thing, but also this thing and how it just feels like everybody wants to convince me that the other side is wrong. (laughs) And how can I get past those hot takes into something that's more nuanced and and start to see, um, see the humanity in, in, in other people with, with perspectives that are different from mine. Um, and so top of mind is a place to start. <laughs> that was one of the things I thought was like, oh, I really would love for, for members of the church to know that this is a place that they can start on some of these issues. Pick a topic and um, know that you're going to be respected as you listen. You're not going to be belittled for whatever your perspective is, but you also will hear something that will challenge you because that's how we get to clarity. That's how we get to understanding. Wow. Um, I'm not sure I've read the first presidency statement word for word like you just read it. I'm aware of it, supportive of it, but um, it's something that's really unique and different. And I love your point that it's hard to go to cable television and find um, a source that's doing what Top of Mind is doing. Um, That's one of the reasons, and I'll just share some comments, and I love, you know, um, I told... I had a YSA assignment as my regular listeners knew, and um, some of the YSAs felt a lot of anxiety and stress, and we got to go a little deeper on that. They were consuming tons of cable television that was filling them with fear of the future and fear of the other side. And I just felt, and I tweet about this quite a lot, sometimes it's best not to watch cable television, as you would know, Julie, because some of that content is not sort of um, just fact-based, the difference between our platforms, but it's fear-based narrative on how bad the other side is. 
and that drives ratings and drives votes. But to me, it's inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of these blanket statements, they are coming after you is sort of this, I pause now and who are they? Um, mm-hmm. And what exactly are they coming after? And so when you try to break a fear-based statement like that down, because um, it creates fear, it just gets back into let's talk about facts. I love your superpowers, curiosity. And I love you link that it's key to overcoming our divide. And yeah. it's, it's a spiritual gift that some of us have and some of us don't. My 90-year-old mother, Barbara Osler, is curious. Um, she has this spiritual gift, and it hasn't gone away with age. Um, and she continues to be curious um, about things she doesn't understand or things about how other people feel. Um, she's a really thoughtful person. We were talking about cable television, and I was sharing with her that it's really hard for me to watch cable television. So I watch baseball. I watch a lot of baseball because it's just peaceful. They, you know, it's not particularly contentious usually. It's just kind of a slow moving game, and I can multitask. And she said, Well, I watch Lester Holt for a half an hour. And she's kind of politically right center. And I don't know where Lester Holt is on the pendulum, but I said, well, I'm going to watch Lester Holt because I don't watch anything anymore. I I read listeners, so I stay informed, um, but I found reading content online doesn't fill me with the anxiety and stress and listening to a podcast, obviously a show like Top of Mind. So it's just been a nice 30 minutes. Um, He challenges me sometimes being left center on, on some of my beliefs. And I think that's good for me. I love his closing line for those of you that listen, take care of yourselves and each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are just some of the things. Um, and if I, if I could interject, in. um, Richard, because the idea that you were willing to, um, to make the effort to do something that, you know, well, I, I'll watch Lester Holt for a half an hour and see, you know, see how that feels, how I can, how I can, ha- it, my point is that it takes work right now. Like we, we are in, a time where it is so easy to only ever be exposed to perspectives that are in line with our own views that we, we do not have to, there are so many choices that you, you, we can live our whole lives with our Facebook, you know, you can cultivate your Facebook following and your news feed and what you're, uh, you know, what you're reading online the, and the, and, and the TV stations that you turn to, it is possible now to live in a world where we're not exposed. And unfortunately, in America, we are still a very um, ideologically and often racially segregated society where we live in these little pockets where, you know, on your street, maybe everybody will have a political sign for the same candidate, right? Where, where there are a lot of, we live in safe little like-minded bubbles often. And, and I feel like we've gotten out of practice being able to sit in the presence of a perspective we disagree with and not have our fight or flight kick in where we immediately feel threatened. I mean, think about this, you know, when you're, 
I mean, it happens to me, even though I'm like constantly thinking about this stuff, I'll be listening to a podcast or reading an article and I get to a line that re- that I really disagree with or a perspective that I really cannot, you know, that kind of makes me uncomfortable. And my gut reaction is to turn it off or surf away to a different page or I'm not going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop reading this, right? Like that's, that's my gut reaction. And it's a natural reaction <laughs> to want to back away from stuff. And then I, but, but why does it make us feel threatened? You know, why I've, I've thought a lot about this. Like, why am I, why does my fight or flight kick in when I, when I'm confronted with a perspective that I disagree with? For me, it's, it's actually rooted in fear. It's rooted in, I'm a very anxious person. <laughs> Generally, I, when I'm confronted with a perspective that I don't understand, Part of it is that it makes or that I disagree with. I'm afraid to go much further into that because I might find out that it's more complicated than I thought it was. What if I find out that this perspective or the way I've been behaving all this time is actually counterproductive or that it's been harming people? Or if I find out that, you know, by engaging in the, you know, by believing, uh, in my own perspective as the only right perspective that I, um, now I'm realizing that it's more complicated and now there's work I have to do, <laughs> right? Like, I, I think I'm afraid, I'm afraid to find out I've harmed people. I'm afraid to find out that maybe I'm wrong. I'm afraid to find out that I haven't thought deeply enough and now I got to go do some work. Like there's all kinds of stuff <laughs> that's easy for me to be afraid of. Um, and one, so which is why one of my favorite, one of my favorite scriptures is in Second um, Timothy. Chapter one, verse seven, for God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And I'm always thinking about, okay, so how can I transition this fear into power and love and a sound mind and clarity? What, what do I need to do? And usually for me, the trick is I have to find a way to fight that gut reaction, to shut it down and go back to my safe corner. And I have to just be, be willing to sit in the discomfort. We call it stick with it in, in our top of mind podcast. And we have lots of conversations as, a, as a, a conversation series we do as part of the podcast where we talk with people about a time when they encountered a perspective or a situation that really challenged them. And their gut reaction was to shut it down, to get defensive, to go into debate mode or to run away. And instead, they took a breath. <laughs> And they decided to stick with that discomfort, to stay curious, to stay open, maybe even humble, and see where it might lead. And I've personally found, and I've heard countless stories from people sharing these experiences from their daily life, because this has, happens all the time in our lives, that more often than not, being willing to sit in the discomfort leads us to a place of at the very least, you feel empathy for a per- You've realized that this person who disagrees with you is also a person and that they're not entirely irrational. You don't agree. You haven't changed your mind. They haven't changed their mind, but you've seen the humanity in one another. And so that builds empathy. So you have empathy. It's harder to see people who disagree with you as the other once you've seen them as a person. And, and often it also leads to clarity. Some of my favorite stories, and I'm happy to tell some of those if you want, but I, uh, some of my favorite stories of this sticking with it um, have the people, the, the, the person who decides to sit and listen and really engage with this difficult perspective they disagree with, at the end of it, they have not changed their mind at all. 
In fact, they are more clear and more sure of their own perspective. But the act of having sat with that, held that cognitive dissonance and sort of been okay in the presence of a, of a perspective they disagree with has allowed them to see more clearly their and, and more, more clearly communicate their own perspective. So they become a better advocate for the things that they care about. They end up with more clarity. They're better at advocating for what matters to them. Often they've also deepened a relationship in the process and gained more empathy. And it turns out to be a win-win all around. But it's hard. It takes work. It takes practice, um, which is, and I think we're just out of practice as society. Top of mind is a chance, we like to say, once a week for people to practice doing this in the safety of your, you know, your air, your ear pods, right? Your, your air pods where you practice kind of just holding the discomfort and I'm right there with you. And you know that like, you knew this was coming. You heard this thing that, that you know, that you don't agree with, but hang on, we're going to get to a place of empathy and clarity um, and then take that and go practice it in your daily life. It's really been a game changer for me personally. This scripture, that's a terrific segment, um, Julie. This scripture you've shared, no one's shared before. It's probably something I've heard, Second Timothy 1.7, where God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And I've always felt the gospel of Jesus Christ correctly understood and implemented in our lives brings hope, brings peace, brings perspective, helps us see each other the same human family and does not include fear. Yeah. And so much of the world includes fear right now. Um, we still be prepared and be aware of difficult um, things that may happen. I get kind of scared at night sometimes <laughs> when I hear a crazy noise and my wife knows that. Um, keep- and, that and that's an important distinction I should, I should mention, you know, it's not, so my, this, what, what I'm talking about here about, you know, setting aside your fear, trying to sort of, you know, master that in the moment. I, I, obviously, our fight or flight exists for a very important reason. We need to listen <laughs> to that as well because it's intended to protect us. But is but but to be fully aware of when it's kicking in. I mean, if you feel afraid and you're in a dark alley and you hear noises behind you, like that's a I'm not telling you to hang out and just like see what happens, right? But it, but but when you when your fight or flight that threat sensation kicks in because you're exposed you know because someone is saying something that you disagree with before you run away think about you know obviously you have to protect yourself and you can't go around just like engaging all the time in everything but to very carefully decide to stay humble and open and curious and see what you might get out of listening actively and carefully to a perspective can, can really open up new avenues for, for us. Um, but I think we've lumped all, it's just that our, you know, we have this overactive fight or flight response that we hear about sometimes, right? Cause we're no longer like hunter gatherers where, you know, where it was developed to keep us alive. <laughs> and so we have to be really careful about being constantly in this and we're and you're right the the a lot of what's available in the entertainment and news media out there is engineered to push our emotional buttons and to to stoke fear because it's a powerful powerful response um that keeps us engaged and uh 
And we need to be careful not to let let that get hijacked um, when when it's unnecessary. What are you going to lose by sitting? There was a story I heard once somebody told me about um, a, a, a stick with it story where, well, actually, one of my very favorite stick with it stories has to do with what happened in Boston in the 1990s. So it was the, the abortion debate in the 1990s. The epicenter of it was really in Boston mm. at the time, a very a liberal political uh, regime, also very powerful Catholic church influence. Mm. And so there were weekly protests in front of abortion clinics and in front of, um, you know, anti-abortion clinics. And there were, uh, uh, and, and it was just very ugly and a lot of, you know, very inflammatory rhetoric at the time. And unfortunately, um, an anti-abortion, someone with those views actually murdered Open opened fire in a couple of abortion clinics in the in the mid nineties in uh, in in a Boston suburb and it was terrible it was a terrible tragedy and in the middle of that you had calls for we need we need to come together and listen and have conversations you know the, it's gone too far the temperature is too high the rhetoric is too high we have to do something different and six women three on each side of the debate who were leaders. So it was three women who were leaders of the, um, the, the pro-choice movement, which is the preferred term that they, they used for themselves. And three women who were leaders of the pro-life movement, which is their preferred term, <laughs> um, were invited to meet secretly together wow. in a series of meetings and talk. And none of those six women were interested because what is the point? I don't, I'm not going to change my mind. There is no common ground here. Why? Why would I want to do this? Furthermore, if anybody finds out on my <laughs> side that I'm like sitting down with, you know, with my opponents who are like my foes, you know, in this war that we're, that we're fighting, you know, I'll lose credibility. And there, they, there was a fair amount of fear. Like they, they didn't know each other. They had spent so much time in the news media and in press releases and on TV, like, you know, demonizing each other and each other's positions, but had never actually sat together in the same room or in many cases, even ever said hello. So six women, ultimately they were convinced by these moderators from this group called Essential Partners to, to go ahead and meet. What, what can we lose? Most of them, I interviewed a couple of them for an episode of Top of Mind and these women, they said, all right, what, what do we got to lose? Things are so bad here. Something's got to change. We cannot have things continue at this level and more people die more, more, you know, shootings take place. Um, so they met, they were terrified. The pro-life group actually even, um, like had a prayer beforehand. A couple of them were involved in the Catholic church and they like met and prayed before, and they were terrified to go into this secret meeting in this basement of this home in this suburban neighborhood and meet face to face with the enemy. Um, fast forward after four meetings, these women are so engaged in the process of meeting and listening to this opposing viewpoint that they agreed to keep on meeting. And they kept meeting for six years in secret, six wow. years. And, 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 the, and, and they, they had to agree. There were ground rules right at the beginning. And those ground rules included that they were not, they could not debate the issue of abortion. Each side was expected to, while you were listening to someone who had the opposing viewpoint of you, the only thing you could respond with, it couldn't be a rebuttal. You couldn't chime in with your, with your perspective. Um, you could only ask questions. 
ask further clarifying questions. So they were trained, they were training in like, yeah, in the moment they were being trained to actively listen, as we call it. And set aside any natural urge that we always have to like be thinking of how we're going to rebut that or all the ways in which they're wrong. Um, what, what, you know, what my, what my comment is going to be as soon as they finish, like really just sit and listen. And so over the course of this really hard work over six years, they, um, they came to really care for one another as individuals. These women still to this day, 20 some odd, 30 years later, um, get together. They have dinner together. They were eating together before each meal. That was another important part. They had a meal. They, they broke bread together before they would sit down and talk about these really tough issues and share their most personal thoughts and feelings about, the, about abortion and why it mattered to them so much. Um, at the end of it all, uh, I spoke to women on either side of, of that divide, right? They talked about how it was absolutely transformative and they never contemplated that they could come to care so much for someone with a viewpoint that they found so abhorrent. And at the end of it, nobody changed their minds. They were all even more staunch in their views, pro-life and pro-choice, but they could no longer demonize the other side. And the rhetoric publicly changed. They could no longer, these leaders, when they were issuing press releases or, you know, one of, one of the women talked about how she went on a, went on a TV show and, the, and with one of the other women from the group and the, the news anchor person was trying to get them to debate and go at each other and criticize each other. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. These are, you know, these are people that I respect as humans. I don't agree with their position. They stopped, they couldn't, they had... They stopped with the personal attacks and they had to just really focus on their differences in the nuance of the of the issue and were able to bring down the at least to at the very least to bring down the temperature. There was not another shooting at an abortion clinic after, you know, during the time that they were meeting. And then they went public and people were totally they wrote this whole article. It's a beautiful article. People should check it out in the Boston Globe in January of 2001, where they expressed what had happened and how it had absolutely changed their lives. And people couldn't believe it. They were all over the national news. They were invited to come speak at all these different groups because nobody could believe that it was possible for two sides of such a deeply divisive and personal issue could actually sit together and talk and come to care for one another. It's really inspiring. And for me, that's the, I mean, that is the image of what sticking with it can do. Provided that you're in a, you know, you're in a safe space and there's an opportunity to build some trust. There are a lot of techniques you have to work on. It takes work and it takes ground rules, but even just practicing on our own, being able to sit in the presence of a perspective that we really disagree with is it's the first step. Wow. I've never heard that story, Julie. We'll link in the show notes, listeners, if it's a public article to the Boston Globe. There is an article. I'll send it to you. And I will just make a plug. I know you've recently had um, Josh Sabe on your uh, yeah. on your podcast. So he's actually the director, the co-director with his wife of of a movie about the abortion talks um, that, that people can watch. You can rent it online. It's called The Abortion Talks, <laughs> where it interviews these women and talks about this really miraculous Thing that took place and what the lessons are for us in, in modern day. You said there's some, you said something really, you've said a lot of really wonderful things. Um, when you talked about your episode, your podcast, you said you are going to be challenged and the, in the end, you're going to feel empowered. 
Mm-hmm. And I love that, Julie, that growth comes from being challenged, but then you feel empowered. Talk about just, and I'm assuming you're empowered then to build bridges. You're empowered to better understand. You're be- empowered to dial down the rhetoric. It doesn't mean you change your positions, but you develop new skills to see the other side as humans. Is that, yeah. talk about that a yeah, little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so actually, it 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 uh, it ties into that scripture, right? In Second Timothy, for God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. So, so if I'm going to set aside the fear, what am I going to replace that with? Well, love is empathy, like we talked about. A sound mind, I see as clarity. Um, power, the empowerment piece for me is I, I feel empowered when I know that there's something that I can go do. It doesn't mean that I, I, I can solve the problem. <laughs> um, empowerment for me is, and so we aim to make sure that there's, that there's room for these, these moments to rise up for our listeners on all of these issues. Empowerment could be realizing that there's more to this issue that you need to go look into or that you hadn't considered before. And so, oh, I'm empowered to go, actually, I want to go watch that movie. I'm going to go, you know, I'm actually going to go do some more research on this because I'm not quite sure what she said about that, you know, or that's an interesting angle on gun violence. I, I wonder if what's happening in my community, right? So, so you're, um, you're curious about pursuing another option, uh, pursuing some sort of activity, whether it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's work on your own in, 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 um, yeah, uh, your own knowledge or understanding. So it might be, you know, going to figure something out more, learning more about something. Um, it, I do think it, you can also feel empowered frequently when I cover these issues, I'm even more hungry. So we'll do one episode. Um, and now I'm even more hungry to go and learn more about, the, hear more perspectives. Like you can only hear so many perspectives in a one hour podcast. And so if you're empowered now to go have conversations about this or engage with this issue that you previously have been afraid to touch because of, you know, what you might learn or what it might make you feel, you're empowered to actually engage more deeply that's a win. If you're empowered to, now you have a, you know, a better way idea. Like we did a whole episode on wrongful convictions and it's like, well, look, I'm not a judge. I'm not an attorney. I'm not a, you know, on a jury, like the chances of me standing, you know, in judgment of somebody in the legal system are pretty slim, but it turns out that there are certain perspectives that I can be aware of next time the district attorney comes up for an election you know, now I have, I, I know we did an episode on immigration and on asylum laws and trying to figure out some of the nuance there. And now I have a better understanding about the kinds of questions to ask or to, or, or um, perspectives to look for when a candidate tells me what their view is on X, Y, or Z. When I go to a community meeting or when I, you know, now I know if I'm concerned about pollution in this particular way, it was another episode we did. I can um, here's something that I think I could maybe advocate for or that I, I want to go see if that exists in my community and maybe I could get involved in that effort in my community, right? So for me, empowerment is simply, you know, no longer being afraid <laughs> of, of, of getting involved in that particular issue and having something that I feel like I can go do next that will make, make me a better citizen or a kinder neighbor or a more effective advocate. As Julie was talking, I thought, you know, this podcast, you're meant to be challenged and then you're empowered as you're sharing with us and teaching with us. And I wrote down to myself, listeners, could Elders Quorum and Release Society be like this? Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a thought. Um, 
I think a lot of times people are looking for, um, I don't know how to word this. Life is complicated. There's a lot of, div- um, like you said, inflammatory rhetoric. There's a lot of divicity. So I think a lot of Latter-day Saints are coming to release the elders quorum sacramenting and want to feel um, a like-minded people talking about issues in the same way. And, and sometimes they bring their talking points from cable news to church. And I hear those sometimes mm-hmm. um, when we talk about LGBTQ issues that they're sometimes, this is two points, I guess, they're getting their talking points about LGBTQ people, not from the church's website, which is not um, inflammatory and full of rhetoric. It's full of understanding, compassion, and empathy. And so sometimes I kind of see cable news from both sides making it a church. But that's kind of a tangent. But I just, it's kind yeah. of a rhetorical question, listeners. Um, I think church can't just be an extension of our political party to the statement you read. I think it's a higher, holier law where Zion is not sameness in political affiliation or just what our leaders just taught in that statement you read, but it's unity. As I've shared with listeners, my wife and I, we were dating 30 years ago at BYU, found out we were in different political parties way back then. And we are still in different political parties 30 years later. We're kind of just left center and right center, so it's not way dramatic. And we haven't tried to convert each other. In fact, we've looked at it as a good thing. Um, We've kept the conversation civil. We respect each other. Our kids are aging up and we're not trying to keep score on who's sort of ending up where dad is or mom is. And we've tried to role model that um, difference in a good way. We're completely unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but there's differences there. And that's kind of, and I've wondered if Elders Quorum Release Society could be a little more challenging and um, I, he, he, just I, have, some, I don't know I have if you've a, got a any thoughts on that. I have a small that. theory on that. No, no, yeah. I, I appreciate what you're saying. So um, people may remember that President Russell M. Nelson, president of the church, uh, I think it was actually earlier this year, gave a gave a, a conference talk, a general conference talk on peacemakers, on peacemaking and talk on about how important civil, civil dialogue and how important you know, and how dangerous contention is. He used this word contention a lot. And something that's been really interesting for me to learn is the difference between conflict and contention. Conflict, one way to think of it is that conflict comes from a difference in desires or a difference in opinions. And we need conflict. Without conflict, we can't have collaboration. We can't have compromise. If we, if we're never, um, if we're never listening to and expressing differences of opinion, then we get into this one single-minded group thing or, or, or worse, only the extreme views are getting presented. And, and, and so we need to be able to express our differences and explore them. That's important for progress, both individually and as a society. Now, contention is when we're dealing with our differences out of anger or frustration. It's when we cross over into seeing one another as lesser than. Um, it's when we enter the situation intent on proving the other person wrong. Um, that's when you're on the path to contention. When when we see our, our differences through the lens of fear or, or anger, we very quickly start to live in this us versus them, this binary polar world where if you're not with us, you're against us, right? And Unity lives in 
in the middle of that where where it's okay to be different. It's okay to express differences of opinion. It's okay to question. I mean, we've certainly been told that by our leaders. Um, we don't have a good framework, I don't think, in Relief Society and Elders Quorum to know how to sort of have provide space for that for that tension you know i actually have been in in the presence of some of those conversations in in sunday school it takes a very skilled um confident moderator teacher and and it only can happen when there is a lot of love and trust in the room because you have to we have to trust one another with our perspectives and know that everybody is going to be okay sitting with the cognitive dissonance of people who are in the same faith but see things a little differently on a particular issue and be open to the possibility that what what they think may feel hurtful to someone else and and to be willing to interrogate that and not feel like they're you know we have to change our minds or that we have to you know demean or belittle i think there's a there's just a, a level of trust with with the process <laughs> that you know i don't know that it's realistic to hope for in a relief society or an elders quorum setting um it's certainly something we can strive for and i think each of us can contribute to making that possible or making it not possible in the way we react in the contents in the comments that we make you know if we're afraid to bring up a perspective that's different you know then we're not helping to create a conversation. And if we if we make assumptions about everyone in the room that everybody must feel like I feel, therefore I'm going to say these things that are maybe that that are very us versus them, you know, then that also very quickly disenfranchises people in the room and and you know, risks moving into the contention phase. So I think we can learn to be careful at least with the way we express our our views um in Relief Society and Elders Quorum in Sunday school. Um and hope for an opportunity where you get into a space where you can feel that love and that trust is a pretty magical thing when you're in a room like that in a church setting where you know that everyone, you can look around the room. It's one of my favorite things. It's frankly, one of the reasons I stay in the church is because of those, those moments where you can look around the room and know that no matter how different, you know, can, as different as we are in our life stages and in our perspectives, that we know each other and we care about each other as children of heavenly parents. And then we can feel safe really to, to have difficult conversations. That was a terrific segment of just how you do this in Release Society and Elders Quorum. And um, I thought of a teacher, I thought of Release Society Presidency and Elders Quorum Presidency. Thoughts came to my mind of an Elders Quorum President, Release Society President, or a presidency getting up and just saying, this is the culture we want in our, in our class, our quorum, our, what's a Release Society called? Group? <laughs> Release Society. Class, I mean, we call yeah. it quorum meeting, so I, a class meeting, but and yeah. just saying, this is the culture we want to develop. You, um, We want a safe place. We want people that have questions. This is how we should respond. We should ask Further questions, like you suggested earlier, versus state or point of view. I think there's a lot of faithful Latter Day Saints yeah. listeners. A, that, I was just reading a book actually where, where these, up. 
Yeah, yeah. And and trying to figure out like, what are the ground rules? All of these kinds of conversations require some ground rules. And I'm just reading this book um, that that talks about how to, how to do this. It's called High Conflict. It's by Amanda Ripley. I really recommend it. But um, there's a moderator in there who brought a group of very diverse voices together to try to have some of these conversations. And they had three ground rules that I think would be awesome for any class discussion setting in in any in the church and out. The ground rules were this. We're going to take seriously the things everyone holds dear. We're not going to try to convince each other that we're wrong. We're going to be curious. And then when all else fails, we're just going to say, tell me more. When you get to that moment where you feel like you're moving into debate phase or where you're, where you're starting to feel us versus them or to, you know, to make, make assumptions about that other person, we stop ourselves and we just say, okay, tell me more, tell me more and try to buy some space for us to turn off our threat response and allow, of course, he didn't use these words, but allow the spirit to work on us. Yeah, those vulnerable, homoreal um, conversations are often allow vulnerability, brings vulnerability and authentic connection, which brings the spirit like you're sharing. And I just... Um, every, you know, our church has a churchwide culture, a U.S. culture, but I think it's hard to impact that. But I think if we're a local leader or a parent in our own family, we could create a culture that you're describing that is a safe place for people to open up. And sometimes in my cynical days, I think of my, of Elders Quorum or Sunday School's The Best Answer Club, where um, just those that sort of had the best scholarly answer with the most church service shine and there's not much space for people to ask questions. It's mostly a, an answer club and it's being too mm-hmm. negative listeners. I don't want to get too negative on church culture. Um, why I hear wonderful stories sometimes of the culture that you're describing, Julie, that's created by a release study president or an elders quorum leader, instructor, and it becomes this safe place where people can grow together and process their feelings about the church. And um, I'm thinking of elder... You know, I'm thinking as you're talking of Elder Renlund's talk, listeners, um, the peace of Christ abolishes enmity. And he talked about the pandemic has been a spiritual stress test for the church. And I've wondered if some of the pandemic um, has brought out this sort of stress test that I think Elder Renlund says we haven't completely passed. And maybe we've seen more, more polarized politically than we realized. And maybe that leads. I don't know why our senior leaders did this statement, but I would guess, and you might have some comments, that they're worried about the political divisiveness seeping in to our congregations and some people feeling not welcome or not included or or judged for voting differently and and wanting to create Zion. So I don't know if you got any thoughts on that or anything else you'd like to share. And then I want to get to your personal story. <sighs> I don't have any um, special insight on what the leadership of the church is thinking or feeling, but um, but I think they've made it very clear that that you know the the incivility, the the us versus them. I mean, there is no place for us versus them in the body of Christ, and I think that that's true within our congregations. And I think we're increasingly hearing our leaders talk about how it's not okay in our communities. You know, it's not. I, I don't know. I was raised in a I was raised in Provo, Utah, right? In the 80s and 90s. And 
Um, we talked about it as Happy Valley and God's country and, you know, BYU is God's university and sort of this sense of like, we're the better ones. I mean, you know, it was it was sort of an identity that I, uh, as a kid, like that was kind of the message that I got, right? And um, and we, it, that's not helpful in the world that we live in today. We need to be able to engage with people outside of our bubbles and to not see anyone or anything in a binary way, because that is how we end up in these polarized positions where we're unable to actually feel empathy or recognize the humanity in one another. So I do think, I mean, President Nelson was explicit in his talk and Elder Renlund was too, that there's no place for contention, both within the church and it's incumbent upon us to build Zion in our communities. Um, you're familiar with this quote, I'll bet, from Brene Brown. It's a quote that I share sometimes. Common enemy intimacy is, is the opposite of true belonging. If the bond we share is simply we hate the same people, we, the intimacy we experience is intense, gratifying, and an easy way to discharge our outrage and pain. Mm-hmm. However, it's not fuel for real connection. And I've shared this story, listeners, and I don't want to take Julie's time, but our mission present when I was in Northern England, this is 1980, felt our culture was so much us versus the Church of England. It was thwarting our ability to take the gospel because we were just bagging on the Church of England. So he, kind of an outside-the-box guy, his name's Ellis Ivory, he was in his 30s when he was his mission present, so he's 80 now, and he's alive. I'm in my 60s and my mission present's alive. But anyway, he had a all-mission conference in a famous Church of England in our mission boundaries, and the vicar spoke, and he wanted us to feel the Spirit. No one joined the Church of England, but he humanized um, the people in England that were part of the Church of England. It was transforming. It happened right before I got there. I wasn't there. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we realized we could have a fact-based discussion about the differences in our doctrine without bagging on the Church of England and our baptism soared and we saw them as our fellow humans. And so I love what he taught. I think it's helped me navigate the complexities of life. Um and I just You were better missionaries as a result. I mean that's (laughs) And you served in France, so you know Europe. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, I did serve in France. But I just I love that that you you know, rather than feel threatened or feel like you had to bag on the Church of England in order to, you know, sort of maintain your superiority or whatever, right? Like you, uh, you became better at having the kinds of authentic conversations with people who were open to a conversion. I mean, that's, it's like the, that, I mean, that is the reason why that is the magic that can happen when we are willing to be open and humble and curious about something we disagree with. Listeners, I wrote down the term illegal alien versus undocumented worker because someone pointed out to me a legal alien is the first step to dehumanize somebody, and that can get caught up in our political rhetoric, but an undocumented worker is a preferred term. You used that phrase earlier that just keeps someone human. They're a human being. Um, They're the same children of heavenly parents that we are. They're just undocumented. There's no need to to call them an illegal alien, they're still human. So some of that tonal stuff that I often miss 
because I'm not curious and I'm not willing to learn. People point out to me and I go, when I know better, I can do better. One thing that I will point out that I love about that is also um, one of the keys to avoiding contention and high and slipping into that place of contention and high conflict to stay in the healthy conflict and disagreement is to avoid labels as much as possible. So, you know, we're, we get hung up with like, well, what am I supposed to call them? And what, you know, what is the appropriate label for them? You know, and well, but why is this label offensive, but not this label? And what if we just didn't use labels as often as possible. Like it's hard for me in a podcast, you know, to like, sometimes I need a shortcut in order to say something quickly, right? But we have to think very carefully about the labels we're using. But when it comes to interacting with other people, the minute we start using labels, we're setting ourselves up for creating boundaries. And, you know, what if in our conversation, instead of saying so-and-so is a, an illegal alien or undocumented immigrant, we say so-and-so came here as a child mm. without a visa. That's even better. You know, they're, they're living here and they currently are not, you know, they don't have citizenship rights status in order to work, right? Like it's a human being with an individual story. And the Ooh. more we can avoid labels, the easier it is to continue to see people as humans, brothers and sisters. Um, listeners, in this last like 15 minutes or so, if you've got time, Julie shared with me a little bit of her personal story. She's in her 40s. She's single, never married, active Latter-day Saint, served a mission to France. She's the oldest. Um, so I'm assuming your 18 year old mm. self assumed you'd get married and have kids and kind of fit in the, the, the LDS norm. And your life has been different than that. And, um, as you're smiling, <laughs> and, um, you, you serve as the ward young woman's president, the same calling my wife has. Um, yeah. but I'd love you to talk to younger, I'd love you to talk to younger single people who, you know, their life is turning out a little different. I think Elder um, Gong and Elder Ballard both mentioned that more than half of the adults in the church are unmarried. Yeah. And that becomes a reality for more and more. And you've walked this road for a while. I'd love you to talk to younger single people and the advice you'd give yourself in your 20s and maybe even back in your teens when you thought, well, I'll just kind of have this, this will just happen for me like it's happening for everybody else. Yeah. Wherever you want wow. to go on okay. this subject. Well, <laughs> um, my experience, I can only speak from my experience and it, I have no idea if what I've experienced is, I don't purport to have any good advice for anyone. <laughs> I think you'll my, have some good advice. Um, the thing I regret is how, is, is the way that I made certain decisions based on my assumption that I would have that life that you just laid out. I, I, from a very early age, so I was raised uh, mostly in Provo, Utah, active LDS. Parents were involved in leadership positions in the church my entire growing up. You know, I, I like my, a, a fair amount of my identity was wrapped up in being a bishop's daughter and sort of feeling the mantle of that. And, you know, like I'm very rule oriented and like checking all the boxes and getting all the things, you know, and, and, um, I was convinced from a very young age that I was going to serve a mission because well, goodness, if the boys can do it, then I can too, <laughs> you know, like I'm not going to let, let anybody have some great experience that I can't have or that I'm not going to have. Like I can't I have to do all the things. And so, so I went into my young adulthood, um, can, with a plan, a very clear and obvious five-year plan that I was going to start BYU. I was going to, you know, 
try to get my degree as quickly as possible. I was going to go on a mission, come back, finish my degree, get married, start having kids, raise my kids at home while also maintaining some work, working at home so that when my kids, you know, were old enough or, or heaven forbid, you know, something happened in my relationship and I needed to provide for my family, I would have done what the prophet had instructed and, you know, provided a backup plan for myself, you know, that I had education and skills that I could put to use supporting my family. Like that was my plan. Um, and I, but I had always loved journalism. I was like, I was writing the school newspaper when I was in sixth grade on a little typewriter in the back room of my sixth grade class with That's whiteout, cool. you know, and That's so uh, cool. was the editor of the school newspaper in high school. Um, so when I got to BYU, I was like, well, I think I should do journalism, but I didn't want to do TV. And I definitely did. I was worried about print, print journalism. Cause I just felt like that would be really aggressive and a lot of deadlines. And I'm like clinically anxious. And so so I was like, oh, that seems a little, I don't know, I'll do public relations because I get to write. Plus, it seems like a great field for, ha for you know, doing sort of on the side while you're raising a family. Like I, t I could take a project here or there and keep my skills sharp, you know. So it just seemed like it fit all of the things. Because of course I was, you know, gonna get married and start having kids pretty soon. <laughs> and um so things went great up through until I got back from my mission and graduated. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, the marriage thing isn't happening. And then it's not happening and it's still not happening. And, <laughs> and I wonder if I missed my window and, um, you know, I, I mean, why didn't it happen? I don't know. I think, I think I was a late bloomer emotionally. And I think also a lot of fear again, sort of an anxiety, maybe um, shut down some possibilities when the window was ripe. I can't have regrets about that because that's just what it was. And the timing didn't work out. And then I was a return missionary and my peers had already gotten married to younger women by the time I came back and, you know, whatever. So all those things, all of that to say that after I had worked in PR for a number of years, I just wasn't loving it. And suddenly I was like, well, I'm, I'm not married with kids and I hadn't actually planned on doing this forever. <laughs> And so now what am I going to do? And I realized after about eight years that what I really wanted to be doing was journalism. And so I regret not having done that degree in the first place because um, I ended up having to make a lot of sacrifices and get lucky in a couple of ways in order to shift into journalism, into radio journalism in particular, you know, eight years after college when I had a mortgage and already, you know, responsibilities. And so that was, that was challenging, but I was also really lucky in that I could afford to do it because I didn't have to worry about kids at home or, you know, paying for a husband's education or whatever. Right. So, so I was able to shift into that and then had to learn a lot on the, on the job um, that I, I wish I would have done journalism from the beginning. I wish I just would have chose, if I could go back to my younger self and say, Hey, look, you know, all these plans are great, Jules, but you don't know how things are going to turn out. So what you need to do is make the choices that you feel like are going to maximize your satisfaction in life and your ability to, you know, make a difference and feel like you're uh, contributing and don't make decisions. Don't, don't count your eggs until they hatch. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, so I was, it, so it took longer to get into, I wish I had, I, I wish I had spent the last 30 years in journalism instead of the last 20 is all I'm saying. Um, and I could have, you know, been doing what I love sooner. Um, now, the older I've gotten, 
And um, I, I had another experience like that where um, I, I was making decisions about where I was going to move, where I was going to go based on where the best singles wards would be to you know, maximize my opportunity to find a husband. <laughs> so for example, right out of BYU, I was like, oh, well, the Bay Area has a great singles ward. I'm going to move out there, you know, and it does have a great, it did at the time and it probably still does. And that was a beautiful time in my life, but I didn't get married. Um, and then after that, I was like, well, I guess maybe I should go back to Utah. Well, at least there's lots of choices there. So I moved back to Salt Lake City and that didn't work out either. And at that point I realized, you know, I'm pushing 30 at that point. And I'm like, well, I guess I need to start making decisions based on something else besides where the best singles ward is. Like, this is a Again, another pivot moment to say, I need to go where the spirit tells me I need to go and where I feel like I can further my career at this point. And if the other stuff's going to happen, it's going to happen, which is when I chose to go to Charlotte, North Carolina, which wasn't, there were not singles in my peer group that were members of the church. Um, uh, but it was a, it was a glorious experience professionally and personally and in terms of friendships and in terms of my you know, opportunities to serve in the church and the, you know, the people that I came to love. And I think that was also where I came. That's where I also made peace with not having children of my own. When I came into community, into a community where all of these, uh, there were lots of other young families who had moved to Charlotte with their children. There were young couples, you know, husbands in their first or second job out of grad school and the you know, moms were overwhelmed and I could look around me in, in sacrament meeting. And I remember the moment where I looked around and I was like, look at all of these children who need a mother influence, who could use another, another woman in their life to help wow. these moms out. And I can be that. Wow. I didn't give birth to them, but I can be that. And these, these women let me into their lives to, um, to build relationships with their children. And to scratch that mother itch that I had, you know, to, to make connections and to be supportive and nurturing. Um, and to find that also with my nieces and nephews, that was one of the reasons why, you know, I was thrilled when the spirit finally prompted me that I needed to actually leave Charlotte earlier than I had hoped. I was there for six years and I wanted to stay. And I, it was my dream job working for the local public radio station and reporting for NPR. And I was just like, and, you know, and I had all these relationships with these families and these children, and I was just feeling really content, um, except that I was a long way from home. A lot of my siblings were still back in Utah and it took longer to get home than I want. It was like a whole day of travel and making connections and stuff. So it was harder to, I didn't get home as often as I'd wanted, but prematurely six years into my time there in Charlotte, I, um, uh, I realized that my parents needed needed some help and that I could do that for them. And I knew without a doubt, like all of a sudden the spirit, you know, light bulb hit me, a lightning bolt, I need to go. And so I went <laughs> kind of reluctantly with no plans other than I need to be there and I need to be there now back in Provo, Utah, where I never really planned to go or land. And uh, um, thank goodness I did, because it gave me the opportunity um, to develop to have some time with my parents before they both passed away um sooner than we expected them to um and to build and and to to build relationships with my nieces and nephews um and embed myself in my family um and find a find a way to connect with uh with my siblings recognizing that I you know as as a single person in that orbit and sort of feel loved and embraced and um, so that was really great. And, you know, the thing I would say, I guess, to, to, 
to single. I don't, I know it's different for a lot of people, but I think, I think when I, I feel so, I feel a lot of pain for, for single people who feel like they can't fit in, in their congregation because they, they don't have children to sit next to, or they don't have a spouse. Um, because they, they don't look like the typical, uh, you know, I guess family. And so much of our faith is based on family, you know, on the family unit. Um, I don't know why or how, but I, I have never felt like I'm not wanted. Um, and, and, and I have never, I'm not one to really be, to dwell on the ways in which I'm different from other people. I'm, I'm, I tend to spend a little more time looking for the ways in which we're alike. So, you know, every new word that I come into, um, the one thing I have, rec- I do recognize is that when you're a single person, it's, it's easy to slip away. And I've had moments of that in my life where uh, nobody, nobody's going to notice if I'm not in church today. And there's like nobody encouraging me to go or like to get engaged, you know, engaged with whatever calling or I can shirk this, you know. And I learned pretty early on that in order for me to stay engaged, which was what I wanted to do, stay engaged by that, I mean, in the church, not engaged in a, in a romance. Um, I needed to make sure that people were holding me accountable. So that is the one thing that I do in every, no matter, no matter if I want to or not, I know that I'm going to feel inclined to want to slack off and disappear because, you know, who doesn't want to break every once in a while. So every new ward I move into, and I've lived in probably a dozen different wards at this point in my life. I show up. Uh, they don't know what to make of me. They're wondering, where's your family? Where's your spouse? And I'm like, nope, none of that. But here's the thing, Bishop. I have learned that I need to, I, I need you to hold me accountable. I'm here to help. I want to work. And I need to know that you're looking for me in the crowd on Sundays and that you expect me to be here. Uh, so that I will feel accountable and come. <laughs> that's, I need somebody to hold me accountable. Um, and that's worked for me that's so far. That's so cool. How did you feel when you were called as young women's president? Well, I tried to convince them that it wasn't a good idea. I didn't, <laughs> didn't want to do that. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I know you've had, you've had people come on and talk about imposter syndrome. I don't know. I, you know, the bishopric felt very sure that I was the person that that they needed and that the young women needed at that moment. I I had long since gotten past the idea that only married women can hold, you know, leadership positions in the church because that's clearly, you know, Sherry Dew changed all of that for a lot of us single ladies. And so, you know, we're, like marital status is no longer something like I knew that that didn't matter. Right. My question was like, am I the right influence for these young women? Like, do I want them to I mean, yes, I want them to know that they can find, I want them to know the things I wish I had known as a, as a young woman that, you know, that life's not necessarily going to turn out the way you think it is and that that's okay. And that you can find ways to, you know, be content and feel needed and nurture and, and uplift and be nurtured and uplifted regardless of your marital status. Um, so I want them to feel that, but I also, I'll be honest, a part of me does worry sometimes. Like I don't, what if they see me being so happy and content and they decide that they should just have that instead. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to discourage all those other things. 
<laughs> so um, I don't know. I, I don't know. But it's been lovely. Like we have a absolutely, I mean, I have wonderful counselors who have very different life experiences who are able to bring that different balance. And the young women in our in our congregation are able to see a variety of life experiences in their leaders. And so it was really important to me to call people a woman who had has had nine kids and has been married for generations, you know, and another, okay, maybe just one generation. She's married for a long time and had a lot, a lot of kids. And another, um, you know, another woman who's a younger mother with, a, you know, still having kids and raising small children. And um, so that the young women can see all of that, because I think we don't have to be afraid. The one thing I do know that at this point, at this stage in our, you know, in the church's um, development, we, we're not afraid of diversity. We don't have to be afraid of diversity. And you know, some young woman is going to going to take a lesson and she's going to learn from that. But I'm not there to tell them how their lives should turn out. Only just that if they stay close to the Savior and believe with all their heart and soul that they are daughters of beloved daughters of heavenly parents. I'll feel like I've done my job. I'm so moved by your personal story, Julie. We could do a whole hour more just on your personal story. I love I love you talking to your younger self. I recognize men growing up, career and being single, they can kind of do those concurrent and it doesn't really change their career. For women, it's more complicated. And I love you kind of talking to your older self. You wish you'd followed your career dreams earlier. Yeah. I think I remember my cousin Heather when she was unmarried in her twenties or grandmother said, well, if you weren't pursuing all these professional things, you'd be married. And I was uncomfortable with that. And Heather was really uncomfortable with that. And I think our culture needs to not create a feeling that if, you know, there's incredibly bright men and women in our church, they're doing wonderful things professionally. And you don't want to create a culture for women that that's not acceptable or that's muting their chance to find a partner. Um, I don't know if doctrine that teaches that. So I love your advice to younger people. And I, I think of our own singles ward, my wife and I served, we, we tried, cause we were in our late twenties when we got married. We tried to create a culture that the, the goal of the ward was nothing about getting the YSAs married. We didn't have a scorecard. We didn't talk about it. We God want, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you well, for that. It's probably my wife, but we just wanted to teach you're complete now. Um, doesn't mean yeah. you are outside of personal growth, that your worth is set. It's not earned. That doesn't take personal growth. And your your self-worth needs to be tied in your relationship with your heavenly parents and the Savior. Something you can control versus things that may be outside of your control, like your marital status. And so you understand that, obviously. That's part yeah. of a chapter of a new book that will be out in September. It's called Building the Good Chip Zion. And it's Better Support for Single Latter-day Saints is Chapter 6. Just lots of stories like yours. But I love also that you said, because I'm single, you recognize I need to be accountable. And how you, it's a great insight to your personality, Julie, that you just said, I'm going to proactively tell the bishop I need to be accountable. Um, That's great advice for um, single Latter-day Saints that could slip through the cracks or could have their records still two wards ago. You know, it's kind of hard for YSA wards to keep track of who's in the ward or who's moved on. So you can, it's pretty easy to not be accountable. There have been many a Sunday where I'm like, I wish I hadn't done that. Darn it. I'd really like to go on sabbatical here for a while. 
<laughs> but know? I absolutely love your young woman's prison. And you're right, Sherry do um, sort of change the narrative on that. But you kind of inferred, I don't want to be, you didn't say these words, but you, you didn't say this. So I don't want to quite say it this way, but it's sort of like, I'm worried that my life is not the ideal for these young women. You didn't say that, but you just were sensitive that I'm not sort of a married mother with a bunch of kids being the young woman's president. And I, but I love, I just think you are, I think the ideal is faithful Latter-day Saint women that are keeping their covenants, have relationship with their heavenly parents that can teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love that you surrounded yourself with people that are a little different than you. So somewhere that bishopric felt deeply inspired to call you. And I think that the principles you're teaching those young women will, they will always remember you, Julie Rose. And I love that you are the young women's president. And my wife is that same calling. And yeah, we have six kids and maybe um, she's effective in that calling. But I just love your young women's president. And I remember listeners when a bishop was called in our stake maybe 20 years ago who had no kids. And to be honest, my first reaction was, well, how can he be the bishop? He doesn't really have any practical experience. And I was in a rebuke of the spirit. I saw him serve with and connect with those youth in remarkable ways. And he's a terrific bishop. And I give him a shout out, but I can't remember his name. And I was a rebuke of the spirit. Um, and so I just love where we're growing culturally, where people are being called into callings, not, not based on sort of court, cultural norm, but on who they are. Um, and not sort of, do they fit all the check boxes? Um, that's sort of part of how I got out of my, whoever I was going to marry in life listeners, I had all these check boxes. And I eventually threw out the list because the checkboxes was keeping me from marrying the woman I was supposed to marry. And I went to a principles-based approach versus a checkbox-based approach. And I just thought that was more thoughtful. It took me a long time to get there. Anyway, that's a little bit of my narrative on your wonderful insights. But I want to keep you talking, Julie, if you've got more things to share about your personal story or about the podcast or just anything in the last segments important to you. Oh gosh, it feels like we've talked. I can't imagine anyone is still listening at this point (laughs) in the podcast, but it's generous of you. I think the only thing that I would say, um, you know, just along the, along the personal um, and the church related lines when it comes to single people, I think, um, I think if, I think my advice for other members uh, of the church who, who are interacting with single members of the church like myself is um, I think we would all be better off if we could let go, uh, if, it, if we could be principles-based, if we could mm-hmm. let go let go of any sort of expectation about like what ideal is and, and what people may or may not be wanting in their lives. And, you know, it, it's just not interesting to me to have someone come up to me and say, I just can't understand why you're single. You're just so beautiful and so smart. And so and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. And I don't, like, I'd rather talk about like things that we have in common or, you know, what you thought about the Relief Society lesson or how are you canning your apricots this year? Like, I don't, I don't, like, I think, I think, uh, I, think it, I think it's very easy to sort of have in our minds this, I, I, you know, certain, certain thing that everyone should be aspiring to. And, 
And I think when I think it's easy to feel like for other people when they interact with a single person to feel like that's the center of their life and the most important thing and the thing that needs to be discussed with us. And I would be happy if no one just ever mentioned it. And for the most part, people don't bring it up. It just doesn't come up. I I like I don't I don't think about it on a regular. I, I'm living the life that I'm living, and you know I'm way more interested in how I can help and how you know and 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 sort of what the community needs and how we can grow closer and how I can get to know other people. But I just don't see it as like a really. It's funny when I think about what are my identities that matter to me. I feel way more connected to a, being a person with really curly hair than I do <laughs> to being a single person. You know. Um, and I think we need to make sure that we provide flexibility for people to, to have the identities that they want to have, the things that matter to them most, and not assume that single people, that singleness is the most important thing in their lives that needs to be addressed or discussed at every turn and considered anytime a calling is extended or whatever, right? It's just a different stage of life. Um, that I, I think we, we we just don't need to <laughs> we just don't need to talk about it so much i'm over it <laughs> you're awesome um, i'm just so deeply moved on so many levels by julie rose so i'm so honored to have you on the podcast and connect more with your work your work is bridge building um, needed work in our community and beyond i would think there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who've been blessed by your professional service your personal ministry Listeners in the show notes will link, of course, to the Top of Mind podcast. Please check it out. Um, might even be something you'd share an episode um, as a pre-read before a release society or an elders quorum lesson. You could do that. Sometimes um, we send things to elders quorums and release society or Sunday school to listen. There might be a segment in there that applies to a lesson and things you're trying to share. We'll link to the first presidency letter. Um, opening the door for non-straight voting ticketing. Um, we'll also list link to the Boston Globe article and act on the impressions you felt from the things Julie shared on just what we can do better. Great Zion in our circle of influence. So this is Richard Osler and Julie Rose signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.